Tales of the courageous have a way of working their way deep into our hearts, doing deep things even within our hearts. Just think with me of the stories already coming out of um, first responders who moved towards the chaos and the danger of the horror, what took place in our communities here in Middle Tennessee just this past week, uh, the courage, the bravery on display as a way of moving something within you, inspiring something within you, awakening something within you. We're thinking back to historical figures from the past. So a man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran pastor in the 30s and 40s who stood up publicly against Hitler there in Nazi Germany, uh, spoke out against the regime time and time again, refused, refused to leave, ultimately refused to leave the land of his birth, actually participated in a plot to assassinate Hitler, was eventually arrested and executed in a concentration camp. That's a story of courage. Or think of Rosa Parks. There in 1955, she refused to give up her seat on a public bus in Montgomery, Alabama, and therein setting in motion a mass protest to do away with segregation and public transport. That's a story of courage. Stories like that inspire us, move us, make us sometimes, at least for me, ask questions. Would I do that? When the moment came, would I do that? Would I be capable, would I be willing to step in to the breach in that way? Hopefully, I don't know. Would I take a stand? Where would my resolve, how would it show itself? This text we're going to look at here this morning shows us something of, of Jesus' resolve for us. His resolve for us, and it is a beautiful thing to behold. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew 26. Uh, the text is on the, going to be on the screen, but if you want to follow along in your Bible, it's Matthew 26. That's towards the end of the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels we have, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. We are in Matthew again towards the end, Matthew 26, starting in verse 47 and reading on through verse 68, Matthew Chapter 26, verses 47 through 68. Hear now the word of God. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he, gave, he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. 
And those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found no one, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ who is it that struck you? Well, let's pray. Lord, whether this is the first time we have heard this or the 30th, this is hard to hear. It doesn't take much to get a sense of the great injustice and your shocking willingness to endure this. And it certainly raises a lot of questions. Why would you do this? Why would you do this? And we ask that you would instruct our poor hearts this morning, and we ask that you would help us to see more clearly, even, even if we think we have the answer to the question. Oh, we ask that you would help us to live the answer. We need this desperately more than we know. We ask that you would please teach minds and train hearts and change lives. Change us, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, we all know more than we possibly thought we would ever know about the coronavirus, uh, this most recent um, health concern, I don't know how to put it, uh, that is moving across the globe and is now making its way uh, across our land, uh, slowly but surely, and we don't really know what's going to come of that in the coming days. It, it might be helpful just to kind of stop and to think back over cases like this from years gone by, historical scenarios that might be instructive as to how it would be a wise approach now to take to this sort of thing uh, in our own day. So I'm going to take you back to 1527. 1527, it's less than 200 years after uh, the, 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 the cessation or the stop, the ending of the Black Plague had uh, caused the deaths of roughly half of Europe. Imagine that, half of Europe. 
It has come back, 1527. It has hit Wittenberg, Martin Luther's town, and the surrounding cities as well. And Luther wrote a letter, and you can read it today. Luther wrote a letter, and it is known this way, whether one may flee from a deadly plague. And his counsel in this letter is well worth our hearing today. How, it doesn't matter how many years ago it was. It's still very much worth our hearing. Now, a few things worth noting. First of all, Luther in no way encourages any reckless behavior on, on the part of those who would try and assist those who have been struck and, 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 and um, infirmed us by this, this sickness. Uh, he, he makes clear that you need to regard the sanctity of your own life as well as the sanctity of the people that you're trying to care for. And somehow, you've got to strike the balance between the two things. That's part of what Luther's counsel was. That said, he goes further. I'm going to read you a quote from an article I was reading about this this past week. Luther argued that anyone who stands in a relationship of service to another has a vocational commitment not to flee. Here's some examples. Those in ministry, he wrote, quote, must remain steadfast before the peril of death. The sick and dying need a good shepherd who will strengthen and comfort them. Public officials, including mayors and judges, are to stay and maintain civic order. Public servants, including city-sponsored physicians and police officers, must continue their professional duties. Even parents and guardians have vocational duties towards their Children. So that the idea being is that some have a duty to stay. They have a duty to stay. They need to take a stand. They have a duty towards, towards that for God and their neighbor. Here's the question. How is such resolve possible? Like how would you be willing to, how would you, how would it be possible to gladly do that and to yield and submit yourself in that way. How is such resolve possible? Well, that then takes us to our text, the arrest and trial before the Jewish officials of, of Jesus. And herein we see his resolve. We see an extraordinary picture of his resolve, not just to a cause, but to a people, to us, to us. His people, we get such a powerful glimpse here of his resolve, and that, that resolve should shape us. Or I can say a little more clearly, Jesus' resolve for us should shape our resolve for him. His resolve for us should shape our resolve for him. But the, Okay, that's fine. Question. What do we see in this resolve that should be doing the shaping? What, it, what, is, what, are we, what are we speaking of when we speak of Jesus and resolve, in particular as it comes out here in this passage? Well, three things in particular, you can see it there in your outline, that we need to look at that are very important. First being the prayer of resolve. The second thing being the testing of his resolve. And then thirdly, uh, lastly, the source of his resolve. Those three things, very important that we look at together. So first, the prayer of his resolve. Now, I, we don't usually do this in the course of these, this series through Matthew, but we need to actually go back a little bit to where we were last week. We need to go back to the garden, back to Garden of Gethsemane, and listen again to what Jesus was praying there that night there in the garden. We need to hear his anguish. 
remembering that he is, is being a traitor is amidst his friends, and the plot is already unfolding. He is uh, spoken of being abandoned by his friends. They're going to disperse. They're going to leave. They're going to fall away were the words that he used. And that's already beginning to show itself in the passage that we just, just read. He's going to be abandoned by his friends. This is part of the anguish, but the greatest part of this, though that wasn't bad, the greatest part of his anguish is he knows he's going to be forsaken by his father. And this is the cup we spoke of last week that he knows he's got to drink that's not going to pass by him. That cup, which is so much worse than, as horrific as the physical agony was, it is so much worse than, this is so much worse than all of that, and that being the wrath of God, the just judgment of God due to us for our sin was going to be poured out upon him in full, and he knows he's going to be utterly forsaken by his Father, and it is tearing him up. This is his anguish. This is the anguish that Jesus is feeling there that night there in the garden, and all of that drives him towards this request. You see it there in Matthew 26, verse 39. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then skipping down this a little bit further to verse 42. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What is he saying? He's saying in essence, Father, is there, I, I know what I must do, but is there another way? Is there any other way. But not what I want. I want what you want. Whatever that is, whatever that means, whatever that costs, that's what I want. That's how he prays. That's what we hear in the garden. That is his prayer of resolve. And everything that flows from that moment forward, including what we read in our text here for this morning, you find its roots back in that prayer. That prayer of resolve. That's the anchor. That's the root of everything else that unfolds. It sets everything else in motion. Friends, we, I, 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 sometimes I fear that we, we, we read these passages like this and, and, and uh, evangelical Christians are oftentimes so used to just thinking of Jesus in this way, but, but we really need to grapple with the fact that this was a real prayer. This is a real wrestling match going on within his heart there in that garden. He is fully God, absolutely. He's also fully man. He is also fully man at the, at the same time. This is not, he's not feigning anything. He's not faking anything. He's in agony. He is in anguish in this moment. And this is his resolve that's, that's coming forth from his heart. So just as a quickest, something to consider is before we move into the second point, when we find ourselves, any of us, in whatever form of trial or suffering, we don't even know how, what to pray, how to pray. We can come back to how he prays, how he prays, and know that there is one who has been there 
and chose to be there. Now, we don't choose ever to go there, right? Jesus chose to go there, chose to go there for us and endured infinitely worse than anything we could possibly imagine to say nothing of going through. He chose to go there and do so for us. That has to have a shaping effect on how we undergo and endure our own trials and suffering. Again, Jesus' resolve for us should shape ours for him. That takes us to the second point. Okay, so we've, the, the prayer of resolve then takes us into the testing of his resolve, his arrest, and the trial. So the arrest. Let's listen in to some of the things that Jesus says to some of the parties that are involved with this. So first to Judas, right? And, and again, we've spoken of this already, but, but you, the, you first read this, and of course the disciples are horrified. The first reader is horrified to see and hear what you do there. With this, how is Judas described? Just look at the details. He's just, even in this text, he's described as one of the 12. Two things at the same time. He's one of the 12, and at this also as the betrayer. And then there's the kiss. Something that in that part of the world, still today, especially then, was a customary greeting that Judas uses as an expression of treachery. This is just horrific. Absolutely horrific. And Jesus responds to him, how? Verses 49 and 50. And he, Judas, came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So they, they think they have their man. But who's giving the commands here? Yeah, Jesus. He's in absolute control of himself and everything going on in that moment. It's worth noting. His words to Judas, his words to Peter. So Peter, the beloved fisherman, pulls out the sword and lashes away, not even metaphorically, literally. We know it's Peter, by the way. It's not listed there in Matthew, but we know from, from Luke's gospel this is, this is Peter. Um, how does Jesus respond to Peter in his... We gotta say... Brave, but foolish. How does Jesus respond to him? Verses 52-54. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I can not appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Now, first, something to note here. Just this is not a call for pacifism when Jesus says, put the sword away. Jesus says, not throw the sword away, just put it away. This is not the time and occasion for that. Others are. The kingdom does not move forth, does not expand by force. That's the idea here. What Jesus is expressing and showing and demonstrating is a profound Restraint of power. A profound restraint of power and strength. A, a rescue 
heaven's might, that's all he has to do. Snap a finger. A whole legion of angels for everybody involved. Twelve, right there. And he refuses it. Rescue is there, available, and he refuses it. And it's part, part, of, part of his resolve here as it's being tested. And then his words to the crowds, these folks that come. It's, it's, you read the other Gospels, and you know this is an admixture of guards for the temple and Roman soldiers. They come with swords and clubs to take into custody the one who created metal, ore, and wood to arrest, to lay hold of, to seize God. They have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea whatsoever of who he is and what's going on. And what does he say to them? Verses 55 and 56. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against me? As, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me day after day? I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples, as he said, was going to happen, left him and fled. So that's the testing of his resolve and the arrest. And then you get to the trial, as though all of that wasn't bad enough. Now you have this kangaroo court, this, this trial, uh, and, and you have his silence before his accusers, which is so profound. I mean, how, I won't ask for a, right, a show of hands. I'll just do it with me. Tend towards self-defensiveness, even when justly accused, to say nothing of unjustly accused, right? Because we feel like that's the most important thing is to defend ourselves. Jesus, of course, is ultimate cause and reason to do so. And yet he remains silent. Verses 62, 63, the high priest stood up. Get, again, the, the, the irony here, this man standing before Jesus and saying these things. The high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Why? Why doesn't he speak up? Well, for starters, it fulfills the ancient prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah 52, 53. Like a lamb, he remains silent before the, the shearers. It's partly that. And it's been allusions to that twice already here in Matthew's gospel in, in, in this passage. So it's partly that from, from centuries before. It's also, frankly, apparently just to make Jesus' accusers work at it. He's not going to give them this easily. They're, they're going to have to incur the guilt that, and manifest the guilt that they deserve in, in what's inspiring here. But why else? Because there's no point in saying anything. This is just so much bias, such crass injustice on display here. To say that there were judicial irregularities is a bit of an understatement. You have a, a trial, a hearing in the middle of the night in a private residence, false witnesses brought forward, the words of the accused twisted, come take, not, just false, not just misquoted, but taken out of context, 
There's no point in saying anything. And so he remains silent. He remains silent. Until Caiaphas presses the issue. Until he forces the question, forces the issue. Because Caiaphas is the high priest. He needs a charge that will stick. He needs something that's going to go beyond just what would have been a capital offense in a Jewish court because the Jewish, given that this is a Roman-occupied territory, they didn't have the power to execute someone, not legally anyway. So he's got to find something that will be offensive not just to the Sanhedrin in this Jewish court, but he's got to find something that will prove to be a capital offense for the Romans. So it can't just be blasphemy. It has to somehow at the same time be a charge of treason. And so he presses in here and, and puts Jesus under oath, demanding testimony in this court. And Jesus obliges. He obliges, verses 63 and 64. A high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, that's not an answer that's going to calm Caiaphas down. He's just poured a lot of gas on the flame. Purposely. Purposely. He's answered and on his own terms. Now, understand how much is hanging, hanging on this answer. The angels are bending forward, listening. How is he going to answer this question? Heaven and earth is looking, listening to see how is Jesus going to answer this question? He, 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 if, he, if he nuances it in a certain way, maybe he can get out of it and, and, and move on to preach another day. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Everything is hanging on the answer, and instead, he keeps pressing forward. He keeps pressing forward. This is the testing of Jesus' resolve. Do you see that it doesn't matter what the barriers are? It doesn't matter what the obstacles are. It doesn't matter how much hell he knows, quite literally. He knows he's about to undergo because of all of this. He presses forward with resolve for us us. Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings trilogy, if you've seen any of those films, you know, full of grand moments. One of the grandest is in the second film, The Two Towers, when the tide is turning at the Battle of Helm's Deep. If you remember that scene, those of you who've seen it, it's been a long, bloody night. The orc armies of Saruman have managed to penetrate the, the lines of defense with nowhere to go and seemingly an endless army of darkness now within their, their ranks. It looks as though our heroes have no chance whatsoever of survival. It's just the worst point, of, perhaps the darkest point again of, of the, all three films, at which point Gimli, the dwarf, says the sun is rising. That seems like a strange thing, except it is. And the attentive viewer or reader hearkens back to a promise that the great wizard Gandalf had made. And this was the promise. Look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. Well, the promise has come true because there he is. 
and a whole host with him. There's a sense in which Gandalf is, is saying and showing, uh, I will return and nothing's going to stop me. I will return and nothing is going to stop me. Absolutely, positively, nothing. I bring that story up, not just as a Tolkien lover, but simply because we need to understand again, because we just have to be reminded of this, hour by hour, minute by minute, that there's absolutely nothing that would keep Jesus from you. That's the assurance that the disciple has, the follower of Jesus has. There was absolutely, then and now, nothing that could keep your Savior from you. There was no obstacle great enough, no barrier impenetrable enough to keep him from us. Such was his resolve. There was nothing that was too painful or shameful, too hor horrific or hard that would keep him from us. That's the assurance that we have. He is always for us and with us always for us and with us. Now, that I understand. I get it. I feel it. I live it. I know. There are times it doesn't feel like that. There are times he, is so, he feels distant from us, but the truth, the fact of the matter is, no matter the feelings, the facts hold, he's with us, for us, and nothing will keep him from you. Such is his resolve. Such is his resolve. Where do you feel tempted in your life right now to disbelieve that? You don't really see his resolve for you. You don't really feel like he's for you or with you. And you feel like you've got to kind of maybe sort of strike out on your own at least this time, at least in this. You need not do that. You need not do that. His resolve for us must shape our resolve for him in everything, in everything, which then takes us to this third and last point, the source of this resolve, where does this come from in his life? Now you could, okay, take the shorthand and the shortcut and the, the, the cheap answer and just say, well, he's God, so of course he could do it. Okay, that's true, but the scriptures tell us a whole lot more than that. Enrich the answer, filling it out a whole lot more than just that. The source of how it was that Jesus was able to stand with such resolve in the midst of such testing. It begins with his trust in his father. His trust in his Father, his commitment from the very beginning to an eternal plan in which the Father would choose to save a people from eternity past for himself, the Son sent into time and space to save that particular people, and the Spirit therein sent to apply that salvation, working repentance and faith in our hearts now, now, in our lives. He's committed to that. Also a confidence, though, in his father's care, a trust in his father, a commitment to this eternal plan, 
and a, a confidence in his father's care. It's, Jesus speaks to this again and again through the Gospels. So there, there's a, a trust in his father, also a zeal for his mission. This is something else that steals his resolve, his, his zeal for his mission. If you want to look with me at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews speaks of this. It's after a, several books that begin with T, the Thessalonian letters, and First and Second Timothy, Titus, uh, poor old Philemon, he doesn't get a T, but uh, you get on to Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, uh, Hebrews, the message of Hebrews, well, if I can just boil it down, is, is, a, is a message to a group of believers that are being tempted to go back, to give up. And, and the author of, of this book is saying, don't, hold on, hold on to faith in Jesus. Press on, persevere in the midst of what you're suffering and enduring. And this 12th chapter specifically is a call to look to and lay hold of the one who came with such zeal for you, Jesus. Lay hold of his zeal for you. And may that embolden you as you persevere and press on. His zeal for his mission. That's something else that we see. What last the third of the three I want to put in front of you. His trust in his father, his zeal for his mission, his love for his people, closely connected to the zeal. Uh, his love for his people. John 10. John chapter 10. Marth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 10. Stirring words Jesus speaks here. Verses 11 and following. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Well, the calling of the shepherd was what? To, to guide, to provide, and to protect, no matter what the cost. To guide, provide, and protect, no matter what the cost. And Jesus is saying, that's, that's me. I am the ultimate shepherd. It is part of, you are part of my flock, such as my love and my care for you. And okay, so back to the source, the source of Jesus' resolve, his trust in his Father, his zeal for his mission, his love for his people. It's what fueled his resolve. And it can fuel ours as well as we see what fueled his that can fuel ours. Just uh, as a quick way of showing you that, Dan Doriani, it's there in your quotes and notes. That's the last one. It's a quote from his commentary on this very passage. This is what he wrote. We can stand firm in Jesus because he loved us and gave himself for us. He planned good for us. Eternal life, spiritual life we can enjoy beginning now. If the Father has given us his Son, if the Son has given us his life, surely we can trust him and stand firm in that. 
Until then, the Spirit of Christ helps us remain loyal to Him in all the trials of life. Again, Jesus' resolve for us should shape ours for Him. Let me end with this, just a, just a, a, a case study of all this, how Jesus' resolve for us should shape ours for Him. It's a fairly dramatic, I'll grant you, but it's worth noting. Polycarp. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, this guy. Second century. We have the account of his, uh, an event rather late in his life. He had been a disciple of the Apostle John. It's worth noting. So the Apostle John lives up probably to the, the 90s. He's a very old man. Polycarp also lives to be rather late, into his late 80s. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. So we have a bridge going back to the apostolic age here now uh, in, in this account. So this is, he's um, the bishop of a city called Smyrna, 155 A.D., Polycarp is martyred. Here's the story behind. It's a season of violent persecution. Polycarp's friends beg him to get out, not just stay on the outskirts of the city, but just get out, move on to, to some other place, and he refuses, and eventually he's found. He's arrested. He actually, the, the story is told that he, when the guards came to, to, to apprehend him and take him away, he made them uh, a meal. And then, you know, before you were ready, you're, you look tired. You're worn out. Let's, let me, you know, take care of you, and then you can take me into my death. Um, so uh, that's, they march into the city. The officials uh, who are part of this plead with him, come now, it's a quote, where is the harm? And you're just saying, Caesar is Lord and offering the incense and so forth when it will save your life. And their pleas, of course, fell on deaf ears and Polycarp is led into the arena and there he faces the governor. And the governor, projecting his voice over this arena full of people, says, have some respect for your years. Swear an oath by the luck of of Caesar, own yourself in the wrong and say, down with the infidels, referring to Jesus' followers. To which Polycarp indicates with a sweep of his hand to the assembled crowd, down with the infidels. Well, that doesn't exactly uh, calm things down. The governor's patience is at an end. He presses Polycarp again, take the oath and I will let you go. Revile your Christ. And here's Polycarp's answer. Eighty and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? The governor continues to threaten him. Devourment with wild, by wild beasts and burning at the stake. And Polycarp refuses, and these are his last words. The fire you threaten me with cannot go on burning for very long. After a while, it goes out. But you, what you are unaware of are the flames of future judgment and everlasting torment which are in store for the ungodly. And with that, with great courage and profound joy, Polycarp was bound and burned alive. Stunning courage. Taking such a stand, not just against a few, but an entire empire. It's quite a case study in our seeing how Jesus' resolve for us can and must shape ours for him. Now, I realize probably none of us are going to face anything like what Polycarp did. But we do live in an arena. Arenas of all kinds. Your arena might be in your classroom. 
It might be in your workplace. It might be in a family gathering. It might be in a, uh, an outing with friends. And it may not involve a, the call to outright deny your faith. Usually, rarely, this part of the world is something like that. It could just be shade it, compromise on what you know is right and true. And that will cause a deep division and it will cause a kind of stirring and uh, turmoil within you, a dialogue within you as you're forced to reckon with something dear perhaps that you might have to be willing to, to let go. But Jesus' resolve for us must shape ours for him. Let's pray. Lord, your resolve, your pursuit, your stance was born clearly, we see here, out of a determination to love us and save us. And such is your commitment to the likes of us. You had us individually, our names, our very faces in mind as you were undergoing what we've just been reading of here this morning. And that love hasn't gone away. You haven't really gone away. You are present with us. And this commitment, this resolve is not just an historical thing we look back to and think whimsically and nostalgically about a great hero who inspires us, but this is someone, you are someone, on whom we can and must lean. We pray that you'd help us to do that, to recognize the times in which that's what we need to do and to do just that. Thank you for giving yourself fully to us. We pray that you'd help us to give ourselves fully to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.